0: Please open your Bibles to 1 John, the little letter of 1 John. And our text is 1 John 2, 1 and 2, but I would like to read the first chapter before reading those verses. We will, Lord willing, return to 1 Corinthians this coming Lord's Day. 1 John, let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 1. Will you pray with me? Almighty God and Father, how thankful we are for this reliable, trustworthy, inerrant word that has been given to us, the Word of God. And though all the world go its own way, we would, Heavenly Father, know Thee from this word, in this word, and follow this word, obey this word. And we are thankful for all of the many precious promises, including the promises contained in the text that we will read today. We are thankful that the promises of our great God and Savior are immutable, that the love which thou hast for us is a love that will not change and will never let us go, that the promise of salvation to all who believe is a promise that none can take away. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we prepare our minds and hearts yet more to come to the table as we hear the Word of God proclaimed, that we would relish the divine truth revealed here, and that our minds and hearts would be filled with adoration and praise for Jesus Christ, our great advocate and Redeemer. In His name we pray these things. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We will read The first chapter, as well as our text, chapter 2, 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, people of God, it is my aim this morning to preach 1 John 2, 1 and 2 with as much simplicity, and as much clarity as I possibly can. I do not mean that it will not have depth, but I do mean that I want no unbeliever, even though it is addressed to Christians, I want no unbeliever to walk away without understanding the gospel. And I want every believer to understand the gospel more deeply and more fully and more richly. Undoubtedly, this text before us this morning is a text that we all need and to which we need to return often, but surely someone here this morning has a special need to hear what we have just read in this entire passage, but especially in the first two verses of chapter 2. Perhaps you're aware that Martin Luther said that this text should be written with golden letters and should be painted on the heart because he realized that it's something we Christians need to think upon often, reflect upon, and we need to act upon. Now the ultimate purpose that is is given here, is not first and foremost to tell us about the forgiveness of sins, but to do that in a context in which John the Apostle wants to keep us from sin. And so he addresses with this tender pastoral word his little children with the intent of our hearing this that it might help us not to sin. So he begins by saying, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But we are sinners. I'm talking about believers. And what do we do when we sin? Well, 1 John 1 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the Lord, in his goodness to you, gives you, in addition to that promise, these verses in chapter 2, 1, and 2, so that you may be completely and absolutely confident in this promise that God gives of his pardoning grace to believers when we sin. So coming to these verses, chapter 2, 1, and 2, the first thing that we need to understand is that forgiven sinners are still sinners, Or to put it, as Luther used to put it, we are simultaneously just and a sinner. Now let's get something straight. In terms of our being in the courtroom of God, judicially speaking, if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not in his courtroom judicially, legally, a sinner at all. You are clothed in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. You are completely justified and completely accepted by God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification is an act, not a process. It is a declaration concerning you before the judge that in his courtroom you are completely just. It is based upon the imputation, the reckoning, the crediting of our sin to Christ when he shed his blood on the cross and his imputation, crediting, reckoning of his complete and utter judicial righteousness to us who have believed. And that being the case, we are not sinners in God's courtroom. Now, Turning to a few passages, in the Old Testament, we have some wonderful words about this. In Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, we are told, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or you may remember how in the book of Isaiah in chapter 4, we read in verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Or back in chapter 43 of Isaiah, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or another passage that we sometimes use in our assurance of pardon and worship, from Micah chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now those passages, among others in the Old Testament, are clear, resounding proclamations of justification by grace through faith. And if we find them in the Old Testament, what do we find in the New? But the clearest proclamation, that the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our legal liabilities were imputed to Christ, our guilt is completely dealt with in God's court of law, so that in his courtroom, we are not seen as sinners, but as righteous as his own son, Jesus Christ, the righteous advocate. Now, morally, ethically speaking, we still are sinners, and don't we know it? We should, and know it more and more as we mature in Christ. Because as justification is an act, our growth in grace, sanctification is a process not to be completed until we enter heaven in which we are completely holy, morally speaking, ethically speaking. And so he tells us in verse 8 of chapter 1, he's talking to believers, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're still morally sinners. And here in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So, if we ask the question, if I'm completely righteous in God's sight, why do I continue to confess my sins as a Christian? The answer to that question is we have to distinguish relationships. Before the judge... As a believer, I am completely just, but I still continue to sin against my heavenly Father, a child sinning against his holy, heavenly Father, so that you are judicially perfect, but you are and I am morally very imperfect." And so we are called upon to confess our sins, verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word homologeo that is used here for confess means to say the same thing. What God is doing in our lives as he grows us in grace is to help us to see sin more and more as he sees it. So that when we recognize that sin in our lives as the Spirit of God works within us, I can say the same thing about it that God himself says about my sin. Our hearts are new, but our hearts are not yet perfect. They will be, thank God. Now this truth of justification in God's court of law is the basis of your assurance of faith, the foundation of your assurance. And let me remind you that the Apostle Paul, when he is addressing some of these matters in the book of Romans, says in Romans 5 verse 6, For while we were still weak or helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now take heart in that. He died not for godly people, but for those fallen in Adam. Sinners, rebels against his divine dominion. He died to save the ungodly. I wonder if you know this little book on the blood of Jesus by William Reed. If not, I certainly commend it to you. A well-known minister in a bygone day wrote to his mother, Reed says, the reason why many real Christians are harassed with doubts, fears, and darkness is that they leave off learning entirely, leaning entirely upon their beloved Savior and rest part of the weight of their soul's eternal well-being on their own experience. The fruits of righteousness wrought in us by the grace of the Holy Spirit are precious as evidences, but they cannot be trusted as grounds of salvation, unless with much spiritual detriment to our souls. Lee Richman, this well-known minister of a bygone day, writing to his mother, says, "'Your occasional doubts and fears arise from too much considering faith and repentance as the grounds rather than the evidence of salvation.' Our salvation is not because we do well, but because he in whom we trust hath done all things well. The believing sinner is never more happy and secure than when at the same moment he beholds and feels his own vileness and also his Savior's excellence. You look at yourself too much and at the infinite price paid for you too little. For conviction you must look at yourself, but for comfort at your Savior. Thus the wounded Israelites were to look only at the brazen serpent for recovery. The graces of the Spirit are good things for others to judge us by, but it is Christ himself received, believed in, rested upon, loved, and followed that will speak peace to ourselves. By looking unto him we shall grow holy, and the more holy we grow, the more we shall mourn over sin and be sensible how very far short we come of what we yet desire to be. While our sanctification is a gradual and still imperfect work, our justification is perfect and complete. The former is wrought in us, the latter for us. Rely simply as a worthless sinner on the Savior and the latter is all your own with its accompanying blessings of pardon, acceptance, adoption, and the non-imputation of sin to your charge. Hence will flow thankful obedience, devotedness of heart. This salvation is by faith alone, and thus saving faith works by love. Embrace these principles freely, fully, and impartially, and you will enjoy a truly scriptural peace, assurance, and comfort. O people of God, he is so right. You look at yourself too much and at the infinite price paid for you too little. Well, that's the first thing we see. Forgiven sinners, justified sinners, if you will, are still morally sinners. Second thing, justified sinners, we who have trusted in Christ, do not lose our Savior when we sin. We have, he says, look at the text again, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's actually prostan patera, toward the Father, stressing that his mediatorial work is happening in the courtroom of God we have. He's qualified to plead your case, fellow believing sinner. He's qualified to, be, to plead your case now, presently, now, right now, with all of your need. And isn't it wonderful to remember in that passage to which we looked last week in Hebrews chapter 10, we also have that blessed we have It says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Back in the eighth chapter of the book of Hebrews, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Back in chapter 4, When it speaks of our great high priest. He says since we have a great high priest. You see we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive help and find grace to help in time of need. Do you not find it encouraging that you have an advocate with the Father, that his qualifications never fade away? What might there be, therefore, in your heart and in mine that needs confessing? What sin are we holding on to? Where are we self-centered and not God-centered or Christ-centered? We need to be specific insofar as we can in confession. We use general confessions when we confess on Sunday mornings. That does not take the place of my specific everyday confessing of my sinfulness before the Lord and naming my sins before my Heavenly Father, knowing that He will forgive and He will pardon me. Because the murderers that put Christ to death on the cross that are in my heart need to go. So you sinned. How awful. And if you really think about it, for the Christian to sin is more awful than for the non-Christian to sin because we have been shown grace. We have been shown mercy. We have been shown the love of God in Christ. You sinned, and it is awful. We are not going to take from that in the least. As a matter of fact, John says he's writing these things to help keep us from sinning. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So you've sinned. It's awful. It's terrible. It really is. We don't minimize it. But what does God say to us? He says to us, this is a faithful saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so we need to learn to live, as that old hymn puts it, upon a life that I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. You stake your entire eternity upon his life for you, his death for you, what he achieved for you, what he accomplished for you. So you say, well, my sin is so great. Yes, your advocate is greater than your sin. Maybe some of you say, yeah, but my sin was peculiar. My case is different than other believers. Don't you believe it? That's a lie of the evil one. We all have treacherous hearts by nature. Don't think your case is peculiar. Somehow you you are beyond the infinite forgiveness that is in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ for you. So, believer, he died for you, he intercedes for you, the link between you and your Christ cannot be broken. Justification lasts. And as for our continuing moral struggle, his blood pleads for us. Third thing, third thing, God's provision for us when we sin in this text is brought to us in two images. Now, the first image is that of the courtroom. Again, he uses this term parakleton, that in this context means lawyer or advocate, one who pleads another's case. And that means that you, believer, can never be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe what he says? That's Romans 8.1. My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you believe those words that we sing? One cross, one Savior, one intercessor. You need no other. And he says his name here, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and then this attribute, this title, the righteous. He's Jesus. What does that bring to mind? His earthly name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, the anointed, the Messiah that God sent into the world to redeem his people from their sins. The righteous one. Altogether altogether morally righteous so that he has the right to bring his bloody merit before the throne for you. That's his name. Before the courtroom, this is your advocate. And then he uses also the image of the temple. And that image comes with the word propitiation in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In chapter 4 of 1 John, in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Probably the verse that most comes to mind is the third chapter of the book of Romans in which the apostle says whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What is a propitiation anyway? A propitiation is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, bore God's wrath for us. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 the high priest enters into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, once per year, sprinkles the mercy seat with the blood of sacrifice, pointing ahead to the coming of Jesus. That day of atonement is fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer and Advocate. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 make this plain. He passes through the heavenly court of the Holy of Holies, where God is presence in all of His holiness, not once per year, not with the, the blood of bulls and of goats, but with His own blood, not for His own sins because He had no sin, but for others, the text tells us in Hebrews. A spotless sacrifice, He offered Himself once for all at the end of the ages and is now seated at God's right hand where His blood continues to purify our soul's Christ, His advocacy presents the merit of His blood, answers every indictment and accusation just as we saw in Zechariah 3 as Satan accused the high priest of God's people who was dressed in filthy garments and those garments were replaced in justified garments. He stands for our acquittal because he satisfied the law and all of its requirements. Well, people of God, what should this mean for us? Well, let me say several things. This is our last point with subpoints. It means, first of all, that sin should be uglier to me the more I understand the forgiving grace of God. John Brown, commentator of a bygone day, wonderful commentator, says the value of the blood of Christ is the measure of the demerit of sin. I've used that quote all my ministry here. The value of the blood of Christ is the measure of the demerit of sins. So I write these things that you sin not. The more deeply we understand this, the more careful our walk should be, but, and someone needs this today, morally we're still sinners, we still fail, we sin. And when you sin, you are called upon by this text, if I may so put it, to immerse your conscience in the blood of Jesus Christ. Your righteous advocate has never lost a case, and he will never lose a case. And so back in that text in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, where it ends, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The point is not some kind of universal redemption where Christ died for everyone and yet some will be lost. Universal redemption in the sense that he just died to hypothetically make make salvation possible for those who add to his work by doing something in order to complete what he completed. Now we believe the Bible teaches particular redemption. He actually saves his people. He actually redeems those for whom he shed his blood. This universal idea would mean that he loses cases, and a lot of them. No, he doesn't lose any cases. And so, not only to you, John is saying, not only to you to whom I'm writing, uh, not only to you who will hear this read before the church, but the redeemed of every place, the redeemed of every time, the redeemed of every period for whom Christ stands as a propitiatory sacrifice. Whether you be a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, no matter your background, or how great your sin. And so when we come to the table of the Lord this morning, it is good for us to remember, it's humbling to remember, it's God-glorifying to remember that we are sitting at this table as justified sinners John G. Payton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, said it would surprise a lot of the people back in Scotland if they knew that I was sitting at the Lord's table with ten murderers. What he meant by that, former murderers, cannibals of the South Sea Islands. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save ungodly sinners. That's why the love of God is amazing. That's why the work of Christ is so deep and profound. So people of God, study your intercessor. You are on his breastplate. Your name is there before the court of heaven. I remember McShane saying somewhere in my reading that if if he had sinned, And yet he heard Jesus in the next room. He could hear him interceding for him. He would not be afraid. But then he said, the distance doesn't matter. Though he is in heaven and I am on earth, yet he is interceding for me in heaven. O people of God, do we understand. And so, Christian, have you sinned? Well, like the Israelite of old, lay your hand on the sacrifice and receive the reconciliation. And if you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this work of Jesus was a finished work, a complete work. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. His blood is sufficient for any sinner who comes and believes in him. And He's been placarded before your eyes as a crucified, risen Lord who intercedes for His own trust in Christ. It is simple faith in Christ that is called upon here. Nothing that you do. And so finally, people of God, the merit of His wounds plead effectually for you. Though you sin, when you sin, when I sin, the merit of his wounds plead effectually for me. Now, I'm about to use an illustration that just came to me this morning. And it's from the biography of Stonewall Jackson. I'm not making a political comment. I'm giving you an illustration from the biography of Mr. Jackson, who was a, a pious Presbyterian deacon. But after he had been shot and killed by one of his own men and his body had been taken to Richmond, people from all over came to observe his body. And there in the capitol building, 20,000 people had come through to view his body before finally they had to close the doors and get on with the funeral. Ladies brought exotic flowers and left them on the coffin. There were so many of them that they had to collect them in other places. But there was one man who was unable to get in. He was pressing through the crowd trying to get in. He wanted to get in and he wanted to see Jackson. And he couldn't get in. And Finally, as he came to the door and one of the marshals was about to force him to to stay out so that they could close the doors. He raised his arm and he said, by this arm which I lost for my country, I demand the privilege of seeing my general once more. His arm had been cut off in battle. And he raised the stump And essentially was saying, I have earned the right to enter in and see the general. Well, they couldn't resist, and he came in and shed a tear over the body of the one that he loved so much. How much more Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Son of God, shows his bloody merit in heaven has access and brings access for us into the heavenly court. Not by something we do, but by what He did. His bloody merit enables us to enter into the presence of God in full and complete acceptance. And so... I remember my friend, Raymond Swanson, died at age 42, Baptist minister. I loved him dearly, and I was one of two ministers that preached his funeral. And I couldn't believe my ears when a song was sung there in which the singers sang, let my works plead for me. When I go to heaven, let my works plead for me. Now, works are in evidence, but we never plead our works. And I stood up to preach And I gently rebuked the words and preached the gospel to them. It is not your works that plead for you. It is the work of Jesus that pleads for you. It is the merit of Christ that pleads for you. It is the shed blood of Jesus that pleads for you. And so, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen and amen.